Welcome to episode 268 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was published on Sunday 28th of February 2021. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the spokesmen. Mountain bike icon Gary Fisher has a book out. It's a great book. No, no, it's a fantastic book. It's eclectic, it's lively, it's full of fabulous photographs, and I loved it. I'm Carlton Reed, and on today's very, very long show, I'm talking Hollywood, Grateful Dead, and transportation cycling with the eponymous, larger-than-life subject of being Gary Fisher. You might think you know Gary's story. The mountain bike years, of course, and perhaps also his psychedelia phase. I'm not too sure he's out of that phase yet, actually. But there's plenty in our chat that's fresh. And it's fascinating to hear Gary reminiscing as I walk him backwards through his life, starting now and ending in 1950, the year Gary was born. So, Gary, this this book, it's hard to put into words how good it is, actually. It is just fabulous. I mean, the cover alone, obviously, is an absolute knockout. Just a wonderful, wonderful illustration of, well, instantly recognisable mountain bike, bicycle guru, icon, whatever you want to be called or whatever we want to call you. It's just fantastic. Then you turn it over. And there's the back of your head, so it's it's a wonderful uh, gag. And then even even the spine is brilliant. So the spine, um, it's just an open spine. It's difficult to describe. It's just an open spine. It's not a, like a, a, on a book you'd normally see. And then the, the the contents inside are also not. It's like a graphic novel, right? So tell me first of all, because this is Guy Kesteven is the guy mm-hmm. who has interviewed you is this like a british production mostly yes tell me tell me about the production values here okay guy andrews also yes you see you know he's the guy that uh really was the main guy behind rollier back in the day yep you know and i met those guys a long time ago and um they were you know really impressed me as they knew what they were doing and guy's uh wife taz darling she knows paper, printing, you know, putting these things together. And it's the, I just let, let the kids loose, <laughs> you know, uh, basically um, I wanted to have a book that had a, a beginning, middle and end uh, call to action, all these different things. And that's, was the important part. It wasn't, I just didn't want to do another dry autobiography you know and i 
I've always believed in you try to find the very best people possible to work with, and then you set them free. Gary, I'd actually, I would, I would stop you there, and I would just say, the text in this book is would be standalone. You wouldn't need. Uh, you actually wouldn't need all the fantastic f- illustrations that are in there, even though they are absolutely fantastic. Because you have, had, <laughs> as you know, you have had an amazing, amazing life, and and hopefully we'll we'll get onto that uh, as we we carry on and we we kind of go into your 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 background before you became uh, this this bicycling uh, icon. But what I'd like to do is just anybody, I'm, I'm sure there's nobody on here who's listening to this who doesn't know who you are, but let me just read out what's the, the first paragraph on the back cover. So that kind of sets the scene. And then I'm going to do something that hopefully you'll agree to. But anyway, let's just, let's read out the, 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 the cover blurb. Meet Gary Fisher, the maverick kid bike racer who cycled straight into the acid test scene and lit up the Grateful Dead gigs. The relentless tinkerer who transformed an industry and sold mountain biking to the world and the visionary who's still working flat out every day to prove that bikes are the answer to a healthier, happier future for everyone. Now, I know you are going on lots of podcasts, Gary, and and they're very, very podcasts. So you've been on the war on cars Mm -hmm. and then you can talk about like your modern activism. And I'm sure you could go on a, you know, an acid uh, trip uh, kind of podcast and talk about that background. Yeah. Um, so you've had just just an, an amazing uh, life. Now, in the book, uh, it's chronological. So roughly it goes from, well, kind of before you were born. So it, it, it talks about your, your, your two or three generations ancestors, and then it comes right the way up to the present. So with your permission, uh, Gary, Yes. Uh, I'd like to go through your book backwards. Okay. So this is like, this is your life, but backwards. And I, I've just picked out, um, so, so I've read the whole book. I think it's fantastic. So I've picked out some stuff I'd like to talk about and, and or like you to tell me stuff. Um, some of which is, is in other interviews people will have heard before. You know, you've got some famous anecdotes and I'm sure we'll touch on those. Um, but there's tons in this book that I didn't know. Uh, which is fantastic to be able to get like a, a a fuller story. So because it's chronological and because it it ends in 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 well 2019, even though it talks about COVID about four or five times, so it's bang up to date in many respects. Um, but it's it it finishes the chronology finishes roughly roughly now. So I'd like to take you backwards. So first of all. Tell me about your Alex, your wife, your doctor wife, and your your young children there now. So we might hear them in the background. So let's just uh, let's just talk about them. So uh, tell me about your family background, where you are in you in your house right now. Uh, right now, it's just the four of us. So I've got a um, two and a half year old girl, a six year old boy, and my wife and myself. And my wife's a doctor, and you know, she's a regular MD family doctor and she's been doing a lot of telemedicine and normally, you know, I work, she works, I still work full time for Trek bikes, but the last month and a half we had, and normally we have an au pair live in with us. And for the last month and a half, no au pair. So we take care of the kids ourselves, which is in 
incredibly sweet. <laughs> I got to say, it's a lot of work and I get, I totally get it. I mean, a mother's job, you know, is never ending, <laughs> you know, and I've been a mother, you know, I've been a caretaker. I've been a, um, you know, I bring in food and cook. I didn't, I if you had told me 10 years ago, I was going to be cooking every day. Really? Wow. You know, and that's what I'm doing and all the domestic work. And it's been, um, well, uh, some people would say humbling, but I've always believed in that type of work is really good for the mind and the body, that, that simple, humble stuff. It's been really, really sweet. And, um, that being said, we've got a new op pair that's come up from Mexico and she wants to learn interior design. Oh my God. It's so perfect. She's so great. And she's been in quarantine. She's going to come out on Thursday and we'll have a family of five again. That'll be great. So it's little things like that, you know, little, this little pod and my, I've got other kids and we've all been in touch of, uh, you know, uh, Skype and other good things like that you know nobody's been physically touching each other or getting close simply because we got too many scientists in the family and doctors and they're like don't fool around <laughs> so, so let, let's let's place you geographically so my son josh has been out to you and you kindly took him for, for a for a bike ride around your, your neighborhood i believe it was yeah. so what is that neighborhood so where roughly you don't have to tell me exactly where your house is but where's your neighborhood we're just across uh, the bay from San Francisco. And I mean, we're literally on the bay. So we get the view of uh, the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, the city. It's spectacular. And it's all the yacht, the yacht club, isn't it? It is very close to the yacht club and all that. You know, this is the original yacht club of San Francisco. San Francisco Yacht Club is located across the bay in Belvedere. And Belvedere's got a weird story to it. You know, they used to... Um, they claimed it was an island and therefore not uh, subject of all the local laws. And they had their own laws. And, <laughs> and it's really a charming little place. And my parents moved here when I was a teenager and I hated it. And I couldn't wait to get away. And I did. And now I've come back and it's like, um, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's a totally changed neighborhood. It used to be, uh, old white people. And now it's people that make money from all parts of the world. You hear all the different languages on our streets these days. It's great. You know, um, I want to teach my kids uh, four different languages. You know, we can do that. The kids will, will, um, absorb it and it creates a, a more nimble mind. We know this. So it's, uh, it's like, I, I guess, you know, I'm in that stage of life where I'm like really, um, where people tend to get, dedicate themselves to their kids. And a part of that is, you know, uh, this insane uh, traffic system that we have uh, here in the United States uh, that we're relying on the, this grand experiment with the automobile that has never delivered on promise. <laughs> Now, Gary, I, I can date you very accurately because yeah. the chronology finishes in a certain year, but and you kind of brought it up there, but how old are you? Oh, I'm 70. Born in 1950, right? Yeah. Yep. So, so 1950 is, is when I want to end. 
Yeah. Uh, so we've got a lot to get through. <laughs> We're not going to go for every single year. I'm going to pick out uh, the, the, the highlights. But some of them will be low lights in that. Yeah. Uh, so the first one I'm going to go to is actually when uh, the Gary Fisher name disappeared uh, off yeah. bikes. So we are talking 2011. So we can go into the history of Trek when we when we get there in the, the chronology. But just tell me about what you thought about the name disappearing and you're like the Gary Fisher collection and not, you know, a decal on the side of a bike. So what were you thinking then? It was funny because I was actually a part of uh, saying, yeah, this is a good idea in that uh, the company we we're producing, you know, my bikes and track bikes and we're sort of cannibalizing each other and sort of like uh, competing with each other. And uh, we're obliged to make, you know, a completely different bike line. And that was crazy, you know, and, and, um, that didn't make sense. And at the same time, Trek wasn't all that powerful on marketing of their own names. And we could go through that history. We had quite a few different names over the years and a lot of them failed simply because they weren't really good at getting out there and getting in front and marketing any of them even the track name. And fortunately that's changed quite a bit in the last few years. You know, we brought in um, a number of new people, you know, younger people with good visions and everything, good marketing people. And that's, that's changed. And it's, you know, it sort of crushed me that I still had a great following and yet uh, they wanted to take, you know, when my name was on the bike, I was fine with that. Even though Trek was on a head badge. And for a while, I've disappeared completely, but lately they, they've been bringing me back and <laughs> they're using a lot more of my names, you know, and it's like uh, the bike I've gotten behind, uh, the Marlin, which is a simple bike, okay? That's the whole idea of it, you know? It's made of parts we know work, of dimensions are, that you can, they're available around the world, you know, fully supported. That bike, my baby, sells more mountain bikes than any other mountain bike on earth. You know what? So I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm happy. <laughs> this is what I wanted to always do is cover the earth with bikes. You know, um, I love high-end bikes. I love Exotica. I love new dimensions, new standards. You know, the heck of it. Let's just go for it. I love that whole thing. But there is a place for the simple, humble repairable bicycle, you know, and that's something, um, we don't make fake bikes, you know, like, like, uh, in the United States, we get this phenomena of what we call a bike shaped object, you know, and it's really funny. It sort of comes in under the category of a toy and it is truly unrepairable because it's all soft steel, you know, soft material and everything. And we won't make a bike like that. You know, we, we, you know, I tend to think our cheapest bike is the world's cheapest bike dollar per mile sort of thing. And that's where that Marlin hits it, you know, that it's a good, simple, cheap bike with incredible colors. <laughs> so Trek isn't, isn't using your name on the bikes, but they're using you. Almost, well, you're, you're a globe, not, obviously now you're not traveling anywhere, but prior to the pandemic, uh, you were a global ambassador yeah. for cycling in general, but of course, Trek in, in, in particular. So uh, it, it, what's on your business card? What, what does it say on your business card? Uh, it's What's your job title? 
Well, technically, you know, I'm a product executive, um, but I'm also a, a, a brand ambassador. So those, those two things, you know, is what I do. But then, then I'm, then I got this other title. I'm Gary, <laughs> you know, I can come in and comment on anything and people will listen. Um, but that's because I listen a lot, you know, I listen a lot. I've always listened to my customers and, you know, it's the key people need to be heard or you're never going to win any type of respect. You're never going to get anywhere with them. So you got to spend your time listening, you know, and boy, there's new things you learn, you know, all the time. And that's my goal. I want to learn something every single day of my life. And well, I, I'm, I'm certainly learning stuff from your book, Gary. Um, so let's, let's go 1996 yeah. now. So we're, we're skimming through the years here. There's, Tons of fascinating stuff in between, of course, but we can't talk about everything. So I'm now going to talk about the kind of the riders you, you've been involved with over the years, and and the the first one that comes up in your uh, in the book, or the sorry, going backwards in, in the book, is uh, uh, Paolo Petzl. Oh yeah, uh, who I mean, Olympic gold winning, uh, medal winning mountain biker, looked fantastic, was a marketable uh, personality in our own right. So I've got that down as 1996 when right. uh, you started working with her or Seth, when she won the gold, isn't it? So in, well, in Atlanta, when she won the, well, that was a, yeah, in Atlanta, you know, but she'd already been riding for us a couple, a few years and, oh boy, that was crazy. But you know, the whole situation we had in Italy, we had a crazy distributor, you know, and everything. And she came through that and it was like, she and I, it's so funny it's like the coincidence thing. There's stuff that we, we marked that, oh, we have all these, these stuff in common. She was our writer for 12 years, you know, and, um, you know, she would win the podium every time, you know, she, she had the timings, the looks, you know, she could wear the fashions correctly and everything, that whole thing. Um, and at the same time, you know, she was dedicated, you know, completely dedicated, serious writer and everything this we've been lucky you know we had some good riders but everybody they get into that realm of um you know sponsorship and everything and well there's people that are well known i mean you look at the stats i mean lance armstrong is still the best known cyclist in the world at this moment but what are you known for you know this the that other thing and and she sent a, a fantastic message you know, look good, ride a bike, be strong. I mean, she's strong and powerful. And, um, you know, I'm looking forward to the pandemic ending and going there and bringing my family with me and, and hanging out with the group, you know, this, the good life. <laughs> mm. yeah. Okay. Let's, let's skim backwards. And we are now going to skim backwards to 1992. And that's when you, you basically sold to track well that's that like and that's a simplification because uh my brother and i sold to another company before that you know and lynn and that was crazy and my brother told me i should have listened to my brother my brother said i don't trust these guys <laughs> he was so right <laughs> so they were a taiwanese company yeah who, who who made those bso's who made those they were they were churning out some pretty poor bikes for you yeah well they treated us as a cash cow you know i would I, it was crazy i got these pricings from 
this is crazy, this pricing. I immediately, you know, jump on a plane. I go to Taiwan. I, I go around a different competing, competitor companies, and I get prices that are 20% lower. You treat me as a cash cow and then a dumping ground. I mean, like, we'd get last year's XT equipment. Whoa. You know, we get, like, bikes where the head tube was cracked and then painted over, you know. This is our own mother company, you know. <laughs> I can laugh now, right? Well, in in. In the, in the book, there's there's an illustration, there's a two-page, a double-page illustration of you being a detective, yeah. in effect, with Anne Len. So, so how come you were, you were having to you know, find out what was happening uh, with this company and, and, and you're being shafted and, and then you must have then tried to get out and that's when Trek came, yeah? Well, you know, a lot of different offers were coming along because the name was... Uh, had been tarnished uh, within the dealerships, but not you know, out in the general public. So a lot of, you know, and that was a time when everybody was trying to get into the business. They wanted to have a name. So our, we had a really good name and they wanted, and Trek came along and I knew that this is the company, you know, and, and I was between a rock and a hard place. Cause at that moment I had, um, you know, my, uh, major financier, you know, installed a, a liquidator, basically. Good old Howie. Howie Cohen, which we turned out to be friends. But <laughs> he, he was a historian, wasn't he? Because I, I know Howie Cohen. Yeah. We've actually emailed together because he he was a, as well as being a, a, a major figure in the bike industry, right. he liked his history. So he liked his 1890s stuff. He was a collector yeah. of of bicycle memorabilia and, and bicycles of all kinds, wasn't he? Right. Well, he also was a guy that he made a uh, killing off of E.T., the movie. He's He had the official bike of E.T. and everything. He was a smart marketer, smart guy. I like Howie. You know, and, and he was, you know, brought to fight against me. <laughs> oh, anyway, um, I turned out to be a really good corporate fighter, <laughs> uh, which is crazy, you know, but um, it's all about people, isn't it? <laughs> really so, so the people at trek of course are the burke family yes so the burke family came along and and, and you describe him in the book you're quite frank and you're saying that the, the brand wasn't that sexy at the time you know this is obviously pre-lance armstrong um pre any of that stuff so they were like a a solid you know good business but didn't have any no. pizzazz. So would it be fair to say you brought some pizzazz to Trek? <laughs> Literally. I mean, Alapetso, oh my goodness. I mean, Trek didn't have a single sponsored writer when I first came there. In 1993, there were two people in marketing. And guess what? They did the colors for the bikes as well and the graphics and everything. <laughs> that was it. You know, <laughs> it's a, a famous story. Dick Burke, I love I loved sitting with Dick Burke, you know, uh, like talking with him. It was the best, um, you know, and he had this famous story where he got uh, profiled by Forbes magazine. Okay. In the United States. And they sent a photographer out from New York city to Wisconsin. And Dick said to the photographer, I'll give you three shots. The photographer goes, click, click, click. And Dick turns around and he's out of there. Because Dick didn't believe in hype, you know, and that was, you know, and he was a leader and the ethos at Trek was, no, 
we're not going to sponsor you as a racer or we're not going to sponsor your team. We're not going to sponsor these people, anybody. Do you want uh, the bikes to be more expensive? That's how they'd put it. You know, people say, oh, no, no. And so they wouldn't sponsor anybody. And um, that changed. (laughs) And it's, you know, you look for things, you know, they could really use me. And I worked with the gang, you know, and it wasn't always easy. But, um, hey, I got a saying, if it was easy, everybody do it, right? (laughs) You know, but they had this thing. They, you know, no one would point fingers when something went wrong. They just all pitch in and take care of it. You know, nobody go home until the last customer is taken care of. And um, that's a really good quality, you know, that sort of thing. And um, I sort of fell in love with that whole uh, Midwest um you know, I like to say, well, the Midwest is where the American dream um, actually works and people actually work really hard. On the, on the other hand, my father, you know, the architect, he would talk about the Midwest, said, yeah, they got this big meeting, a whole bunch of people at a round table, and they go around and around and around and around until it's oatmeal. Mm. You know, and that's the truth. I mean, East Coast, West Coast. We can come up with crazy ideas and people go, yeah. And it's boom, that's it. Everybody's on board. And we had a, you know, especially in those days, you had a much harder time, you know, of charging people up. But everything's changed. You know, I mean, now everybody sees it, you know, within seconds, right? Because now we communicate in a totally different way. And then we travel. People travel all the time. Now, people didn't travel, you know, as much 30 years ago. No way, you know, and now, you know, you see things will pop up and, and roll around the globe rather quickly. You know, it's a totally a different atmosphere from 30 years ago. <laughs> well, that, that, that's a good segue for me, actually, into a different date. So we're now going into we'll, we'll skip the, the early 1990s and we'll go straight to the middle of the 1980s. And we're going to stick on a travel theme because Anlin was uh, Taiwanese. But before that, uh, you were Japan. Uh, so in 1985, it says in your book, uh, you helped Shimano of Japan with what everybody now, anybody who's born after that date, it, it doesn't realize how bad gears used to be. Yeah. Uh, you had to feel where they were. Right. Uh, so Shimano, uh, uh, with your help, brought out uh, SIS indexed gears so shimano indexing system so the click 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 system yeah. everybody now uses but even the, even the bso's have got fantastic click click uh, click um uh, gear systems back then you, it literally was you you feel the gears and it was almost a religion in, in like yeah. where we, the gear is and stuff yeah it was sort so, of a noise abatement system <laughs> yeah so uh, how did you help shimano with that how was how was uh how was that going down with shimano well it it was a tradition for me and how i handled my vendors especially the japanese vendors is that uh, i i give them everything you know i i'm going to tell you everything i possibly can so you can make the best possible product and yeah i know you're going to help my competitors but this is as well as me but this is going to make everything work and then I'd also ask, you know, I want the best price. I want, uh, you know, the first delivery and I want terms. And I wound up getting uh, a loan from the Japanese government back in the day. But they $80,000. Uh, 
it says here. Yeah, yeah. A, a government loan. That's yeah. that's that's a lot. Well, it was enough for a couple of containers of bikes. You know, and and um I just you know, I got a fantastic cooperation. That was the SIS with the uh, sent uh, engineer, uh, Shimpei Okujima. He was also a, a really hot road racer. And he rode with my riders for like four months, you know, and just, uh, you know, and Joe Murray, that kid, uh, well, he, well, he was a kid then, man, he, he was good. And he landed himself a lifetime job as a skunk tester with uh, Shimano for good reason, you know. It's just bringing together good people that can work together. You know, that's the thing. And then, uh, you know, giving feedback um, all the time, really honest feedback you know, about uh, how it's going to go together. And that's, you know, from um, the point of view, I mean, I was a mechanic for a long time. Um, still am, still working my own darn bikes. Uh, but, you know, how's this thing go together? You know, how's it come out of the package? How's it attached to the bike? You know, everything you know all the way through you know see how it's going to work and then hopefully have a good life a good long life you know and um those guys i mean shimano uh and then all the other the other side too which was uh suntour segino you know um and then the tubing makers ishiwata tange um i taught them and man they taught me how stuff was made you know that's, so it says you've you visited Japan 1981 in the first time. We'll get there when we when we, when we go backwards in a little bit. But first of all, tell me more about because you, you were working with Shimano on uh, DRXT, which is the first right. you know full group set that's still with us. Of course, uh, you were working on that group set with them, yeah, yeah, yeah. That and, and the Suntour, you know, had their group set, and that was like uh, along with their whole you know group of different makers and. It didn't all look the same. You know what I'm saying? The Shimano stuff, uh, graphically, you know, and just design-wise and everything, it was like completely integrated. That that was a real breakthrough, you know, to, to have uh, a whole group for a mountain bike that it looked like it was really made for a mountain bike. So... Uh and I guess we ought to fill in to people here because we, we obviously know everybody's just accepts Shimano as a you know as the global behemoth right. you know market maker. Back then it wasn't. So you mentioned Suntour there. You know Suntour was the leading um, maker of uh, component maker of of the day. Uh, certainly the Japanese anyway. And then you've got Campagnolo, of course. Yeah. And Shimano was was in effect. You know it's been going since the nineteen twenties. Uh, been you know ticking along for a long time, but it really became big in the 1980s so there's like a huge breakthrough so you helping them with drxt and sis is part of the reason that they are now this mammoth mammoth company i'm really happy when people like that are successful i'm really happy you know it, it and you know i like i don't mind having competitors it's like uh, mike senior that specializes man he's a tough competitor he you know uses his tricks and walls and all that stuff but i don't care i like mike you know, I like him. He's, he's all right by me and he's pushed the whole thing. And I, I point out to my competitors, you know, like Tony Lowe. Well, he's retired. The kids are in a, a, a giant, Tony Lowe giant. It's like he, that guy takes the, he's taking the high road. I mean, those guys could have killed us with price. I mean, those guys are the very best buyers of parts in the world. You know, they get a better price and better delivery than you do, buddy. 
for good reason. <laughs> they're on the case, you know, and everything. And they work with their suppliers, you know, and they work together and everything. And that's, that's uh, really evident. Uh, you see it now. It's like um, uh, the whole business has sort of started to turn a corner. I feel like we finally started to grow up. <laughs> you know, and not fight each other so much as to think big and, and, um, go boldly and everything and, and make it a bigger market for us. And, uh, of course make people happy and make people healthy. Oh. So 1981 was when you went to Japan for the first time. Uh, and an awful lot of the bike industry went to, to, to Japan at that point, but what, what, why Japan? Cause you know, now we know of Taiwan, why, apart from Shimano, why, or maybe it was just Shimano, why Japan? Well, they were, uh, they were a huge manufacturing powers, you know, period. You know, I mean, it, their automotive industry was, was really pushing the U.S. and everything. And, and it was evident there was quality there. Um, but I'll tell you, for myself, it came down to an, um, one particular event. And that was in 81, um, at the New York bike show at the bequest of bicycling magazine, it did a uh, big presentation on the mountain bike and all the big wigs showed up, you know, from the industry and the Japanese, it blew their mind. And then they just started to come out and visit me all the time. And I, we had like hundreds of Japanese visitors, handfuls of European visitors and one from the United States. That's it. You know? And, it was who's interested, who wants to do things. And, um, it was just, they wanted to go, let's go, let's make new things. Let's do things. And, you know, I talked to, uh, I remember talking to, um, Reynolds 531 tubing and to get a pair of fork blades, like the Unicron style. I wanted to do that. You know, that was like, that was my idea. Real. I mean, it, it was basically putting two different ideas together. It was no, it wasn't rocket science, but I named it the Unicron, right? Uh, and I had a deal with uh, Tange tubing, you know, for all those Unicron forks. And then um, my trademark attorney said, hey, this guy, um, I don't think he can use that name, you know, because there's a guy that owns Crown Bicycle. Then I met my neighbors, next door neighbors to my parents' house. And the guy there, the next door neighbor says, Crown, Crown. That's my father's company. You could have used that name. <laughs> I blew off that that deal with Tongue. That was that was going to be a good deal. But anyway, you know, ups and downs, rounds and rounds. The other stuff, you know. Uh, but I had to do it all again. But <laughs> I do it different, of course. But um, no, it was amazing. Those guys were completely on the gas. You know, and I had culture shock when I came back because people there were so attentive and on it. And it's like I came back, I came from uh, laid back Marin, you know, and uh, I come back here and it's like, you don't understand. There are people outside this country going at a completely different speed than we are. <laughs> yeah, you're describing like getting onto trains, a bullet train, yeah. getting to the next meeting within two minutes of spare, and then you know just going off again and being yeah. basically industrious, very very industrious. Oh yeah, you know, and incredibly efficient. You know, with the whole thing. I mean, I go to that first visit I went to Shimano. They showed me their automatic warehouse, right? No humans there. And oh, and then the the room that's makes making a tremendous amount of noise. 
and you walk in, they flip on all the lights where well, they're making derailers uh, robotically. This is like in 1981, my friend, you know, it's like, it's like, whoa, you know, you really understand, um, what type of competition the United States was getting to have then. I mean, we went in the fifties. I mean, we had no competition, you know, all of our industrialized, uh, competition had been literally flattened. Right. So it's, it's, it just, it really, uh, drove home, you know, that, uh, mm, things are changing <laughs> fast. So Japan was a really good partner because he needed to have this whole thing was growing. And if I didn't do it, other people would, we'd go to Japan. It was obvious, you know, and, and, um, you know, Mike went there, Mike's vineyard, you know, he did a lot of work over there and his people of, uh, you know, really getting the supply chain going. I've, I've got Mike down for 1980. Don't worry, we're going to get oh, yeah. to Mike. <laughs> but another character, yeah. uh, this is the, the disadvantage, of course, of, of, of going uh, backwards through chronology. Yep. We kind of meet characters at the end of their uh, their time with you rather than the beginning. So we're, we're going to talk about Charlie Kelly now. Oh, yeah. um, so Charlie Kelly, so the reason I'm talking about now is 1982. Charlie Kelly leaves mountain bikes. And again, the, the, the weakness of going backwards is, you know, what is mountain bikes? Mountain bikes, of course, you know, is a generic term. It was also the term that you came up with for your first company with Charlie. Yeah. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. But before we get to that, because we're going we're gonna to come on to, to the st- founding of the company, but Charlie Kelly leaving. So what was, what was because you've said it's, it was a sad, that, sad day, of that course. That happened in 83. And it was mm-hmm. June of 83. And previous to that, um, people were asking me because I was looking for money. Well, what's Charlie do? Mm, he builds wheels, you know, he's a good wheel builder. And he would just sort of leave the room when we ever got into financial stuff. I mean, the first guy I ever hired was a bookkeeper because I knew you got to keep stuff straight or you just, you don't know where you are, you know you're not going to have a chance. And so I was having a, and we weren't doing well right then, you know, we were in debt, you know? And so I said to Charlie, you know, I was having a hard time. Nobody would loan us money. They'd loan me money. They wouldn't loan him money. And it was getting a real, be a real problem. And they'd say, what's he do? He owns half the company. What's he do? So I take the walk around the block and I say with them and say, you know, uh, and by California law, you can dissolve a partnership. I want to dissolve this partnership, you know, uh, and I gave him a forgiveness of debt. We were $80,000 in debt. So he got off the hook for 40 grand. He got a computer, he got a bike. And I think that was about it. And he agreed to that, signed off on it. And uh, our attorney, Clay Green, wrote the papers, Clay Green's still around, you know. And, um, you know, a few months later, Charlie wasn't too happy that he left the business because I wound up making a bunch of money that year, mm. you know. So Charlie, Charlie Kelly, Otis Guy, Joe Breeze, there's a whole bunch of, of characters that are famous in, in uh, the, 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 the story of mountain biking. Mm-hmm. Do you get on with them all still? Because they're all roughly, you know, Bay Area or no, Marin well, County, many of them. Not really. You know, it's like, I just, I didn't, you know, Charlie, you know, we separated. There was a, I didn't insist on a non-compete because I knew he was never going to compete with me. 
you know, and the rest of them, you know, it's the same deal. They just like live on their own planet and they just don't, they don't understand me. <laughs> you know, it's like I, Charlie's written about me. He's never interviewed me. Never. You know, and he keeps writing the same old story over and over again. And it's like, you know, I named the company Mountain Bikes. I thought about that in my own little head, you know, <laughs> We blew it, you know, as far as a trademark goes, it went generic and everything. I know a lot more about trademarks than I did then, you know, but I don't, I don't, um, you know, listen, those guys don't slow me down at all. And it's like, you know, Joe's a sweetheart. I love Joe, you know, but he doesn't understand what happened so much there. Uh, the forces, you know, it's like none of this stuff is truly original. I mean, 120 years ago, everybody rode off road. Come on. And then you go back in history and you can like, even uh, the first guy that ever loaned me money, John Finley Scott, UC Davis professor, 1953, he made what he called a woodsy bike. And, you know, it's a Schwinn varsity frame where the frame had been, you know, widened a bit so he could fit uh, 26 by 175 tires, had a, a Sturmy Archer three speed hub on the rear with a drum brake on the side and a three-speed cog set. So it was a nine-speed bike, you know, and um, a, um, oh, what, a caliper brake. And, you know, you could argue back and forth. Ah, oh, that was this, that was that, you know. And then Joe Breeze found these guys in France, and I think it was in 40, late 40s. They had some pretty cool-looking bikes, you know. And then, of course, there's Jeff Apps, you know, from the U.K. He, he was completely independent of us. And then Victor Vincenti, right around the same time, you know, mm -hmm. came along and, and had his whole thing going and everything. And it's all great, you know, and and I'm not um I'm not saying that I invented anything. I mean the, the bikes we made were just sort of heavy duty road bikes, you know, there was no suspension or anything. You know, it's sort of funny. It wasn't rocket science, you know, I don't think. The thing that's the magic is marketing and providing the product, you know, and making a really nice product, you know, and that's what a lot of these original guys don't, they, they have no clue, you know, uh, mm. but Mike senior does, he knows exactly. And then there was, uh, John, uh, Kirkpatrick from Ross bicycles and he passed away. He died of cancer, you know, in the eighties, but that guy, oof, he understood exactly what he was doing. You know, and then, um, oh, what, um, oh, GT, Gary, uh, Gary Turner. Mm -hmm. Uh, but he, he was killed in a motorcycle wreck. I mean, that guy, he could have changed everything. You know, there's like all these great people to like get people excited about doing something and say, here it is, let's go. And then the next part is making more places that people can go ride. And what was fantastic about off-road was like, wow, there was just endless opportunity, you know, out there. And especially in those days in the, you know, in the uh, 70s, late 70s, early 80s, I mean, very few people were going out into the woods. And this was such a fun way to get out of well, the woods. So We're going to get onto that. But I do like, let's just at that point mention the, the, the Larkspur Canyon gangs. Oh, yeah. Like uh, Logan, which was no cars, no cops, no concrete. So you're getting away from, from everything. Yeah. 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 And those, that was like, 
those are my friends, uh, some of my friends in high school, at Redwood High School, that I met. And how we met was more through the drum circle thing. <laughs> we will, Gary, we, we will get there, I promise. I'm jumping but too fast. You, you, no, 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 it's fine. It's, it's, it's a weird way of going through this. So I, yeah. I recognize that. Uh, so you, you've mentioned him a few times. We can now, now, now bring him uh, into the story officially. So 1980... Uh, you've introduced uh, bull moose handlebars, Shimano free hubs, and bear trap paddle uh, pedals oh, onto mountain bikes machines. And your machines, uh, to set the scene, are about fifteen hundred dollars at this point. Yeah. Uh, and then Mike Sinyard, who we're now introducing, of of Specialized, uh, gets one of your bikes, buys one of your bikes, whatever, and then the Specialized Stump Jumper is roughly your bike but $750. Well, actually we had a bike at that moment that he came out with one for 995. That was a, our cheaper bike that was equipped almost identical. But it was a domestic made frame, you know. So yeah, it killed my sales uh, for about a month and then he ran out of bikes. And my bikes sold even better because he he marketed his bike's really well. And when you're an orphan out there all by yourself, people go, uh, I don't know. When you got five other hot competitors that are going for it, everybody's going like, this is it, man. This is it, you know? So Mike did help open up the whole thing, you know? And like, mm. uh, some of our guys were like, oh, how could he ever do that? You know, it's like, come on, how could he not? You know, he bought four bikes from me and he enjoyed it a lot. He liked it. You know, he said, yeah, and this is going to work. And he's not stupid, you know. I mean, it wasn't a, a real stretch to see that this thing was going to work. So the stump jumper is generally considered by most people to be like the first, in inverted commas, commercial right. mountain bike. Not not like, I mean, you had commercial mountain bikes, you know, that you were selling them, but the first one done by like a manufacturer. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, we can get into all these nitpicking um things you know who did this who did that and everything it's nitpicking <laughs> a lot of it you know it's like uh oh it's like who made the first uh you know frame from scratch in our neighborhood was craig mitchell craig made the first one and that's why you say that's why joe's is the first successful because charlie kelly rode uh, craig's for about a week a couple of weeks didn't like it i don't know why you know, I think the geometry was different and he just didn't like it. So he took it apart and put together a different one. So that wasn't successful. Ah, blah, blah. I like Craig. He was an amazingly clever guy, you know, and had a, I learned a lot from Craig. I learned a lot from Doug White, White Industries. He was around in the 70s. Oh, man, clever, you know. And another guy, uh, Paul Brown. Paul Brown's still around and he's like a, uh, more like a collector. Knows knows all the old equipment and all that stuff. And those were the three guys in the bike shop where I was working. <laughs> Sun, Sunshine Bike Works in Fairfax. Yeah. Is that the one? Yeah. Ed Christensen, the owner, you know, and that was a great little crucible. I mean, it, you think that's good. Look at this. It, it was sort of that attitude all the time. And at the time I was a, a road tester for Bicycling Magazine. Mm. Aha. And I would bring in, you know, like, the coolest things, you know, I mean, I get a new bike every month and I knew more and more people in the industry, you know, and, um, so I knew what was going on. I mean, that helped a lot, you know, and it, 
that was my trajectory. You know what I mean? There's the other guys in Marin didn't work for bicycling. And that, that meant a lot. Cause I, I had an audience in front of like all these manufacturers and everything. They, they were looking for me to look at their stuff all the time. Mm. Oh, that was a lot. Of so, fun. so we've now reached the 1970s when I'm 1979. And that's when you set up mountain bikes. So if the company name is mountain bikes, all one word, Yeah, you set that up with Charlie Kelly and you made, well, how many bikes did you make in, in that first oh, year? Yeah, the first year is about 160 bikes. And they were selling pretty much locally, or were you selling internationally already? Oh, well, we sold all over, all mm-hmm. over, you know, all over the place. Cause we had, uh, we had a mail order catalog. <laughs> I had a computer and the computer, you know, it would take, uh, oh, about three hours to sort about the uh, 6,000 <laughs> names by zip. It was like, just, but it worked. You know I mean? All this stuff. We had a telex machine. Oh, do you remember those things? <laughs> <laughs> but no, we were definitely, I was trying to go as far and wide as I possibly could because the, the strategy was to, is to become a name, you know, to start and become a name. Um, it worked. <laughs> Problem was, it was the wrong name, <laughs> but you know, or I didn't nail it down. You know, that real big problem. But, uh, Eh. Well, it helps if it's generic in that it's yeah. everybody knows yeah, yeah. these mountain bikes. No, you know, no. So. that's true. I mean, it's it's better to have a generic name than nothing at all. Uh, you got to have a handle on a thing. You know, that, that used to be a classic thing that Trek would do. They'd develop some thing and they'd, they'd say, well, uh, what do you call this? <laughs> we get out there to do the presentation. I say, well, what do you call this? And they'd have some sort of like cryptic description, you know, and I'd go, no, 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 no. It's like when you conceive of the product, you better start with a name right then, you know, mm. and get the whole thing rolling because this is, it's almost as important as the thing itself. It's just amazing. Mm. <laughs> so ni- 1977. Yes. Uh, Gary, uh, you've placed fifth at the cyclocross nationals. So we're going to talk about your, your prowess as a, as a racer in a second, as we get earlier into your your, your life story, uh, but perhaps of more renown to most people who, who, who know your story is you set the fastest time in the repack. So what is the repack? Uh, the repack race is about two mile long downhill. And it was a pretty big deal for a while, you know, locally, um, people would talk about it a lot. And, and, uh, so it was, uh, the first sort of dirt, uh, time trial, you know, and I managed to win the thing a few times and then set the record uh, on it, you know, and it was a scary thing for me, <laughs> but, um, I learned a lot, um, bike handling by, uh, riding a mountain bike because, and you do, because you get all these opportunities for the, the wheels to lose traction in a road bike that only happens once every six months. And when it happens, it's like, if you don't know what to do, you fall down, boom. You know, boom, you just go down Uh mountain bike, you know, and you go out on a slippery day and, and it'll, you'll get a thousand opportunities for the wheels to slip. So you'll learn how to deal with how the wheels slip. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And so this is just two miles yeah. down uh, a fire road down uh, Mount Tamalpais right. in, in Marin County. Yes. And there's a, how many, how many people are, are taking part in, in when it, when it ended, when, you know, you, you, you've, you got the final one, how many people were riding at that point? I'll be about 50, 70 people would show up and actually mm-hmm. ride it. There'd be another, you know, 
150 spectators. But that race got into a segment of Evening Magazine. And Evening Magazine uh, did an eight-minute-long segment on it, and they showed it nationwide, and that won an award for him for the year. It was hot, you know, and it was just this, like, you know, the mountain bike was this combination of, like, this is insane. Oh, no, you're not supposed to ride bikes off-road. People thought, this is crazy. And then the reality was it was extremely practical because there's this heavy-duty bike, you know, where the tires stay inflated, where it had a practical, more or less upright position with the shifters right there at your fingertips with a, a relatively wide saddle and everything. And that was, a, you know, a golden combination because anybody could ride this thing and anybody could dream about, you know, riding over a mountain. And that was, you know, it was perfect that way. And uh, So how come you have the fastest time because it stopped? And why did it stop? Oh, it's the re- you, you can no longer ride it. In effect, what? So, what? Wh- why is that? Now you can ride it on Strava, and they've beaten my record. <laughs> <laughs> Officially, you can ride that fire tra- that that trail. Go check it out on Strava. It's there, and I think somebody uh, uh, like got me by about twenty seconds. Uh huh. You know, but we practiced like crazy. That's why my time was good. Go out and do it again and again and again and again and again. You know, but this is in this is in jeans and woodman's shirt and and yeah. and work gloves. This is not like you're not you're not on armor here. You're not wearing a helmet. Uh, no. You're not wearing. It didn't exist. Lycra. This stuff didn't mm. exist, and lycra was like uh, was uncool. I mean, if I well, lycra barely existed. It was a woolly jersey. You know, come on. Mm-hmm. You know, and <laughs> what's the difference between that? You know, uh, but I did. Uh, I would switch out the steel toed boots for a you know, a pair of Nike trainers, you know, <laughs> for the race and everything. And I did, uh, on a couple of occasions, I, I put a, uh, a, a double chain ring set up on the front. Well, well, uh, well, you see a cyclocross guard thing, you know, where you take two chain rings that you, you take all the teeth off of and you, you sandwich uh, a single chain ring, the old school, classic, uh, cyclocross setup. Cause that worked really well to keep the chain on. I, mm-hmm. I used that. I set that up a few times for the race and everything. But, um, it was, I did a faster time simply because, um, that day had a tailwind and, uh, the, <laughs> the dirt was in the right condition, you know? And then would, would Joe Breeze be your main competitor there? Oh yeah. Joe, was, Joe would be, you know, real close to me. Joe was really good. He's still a good downhiller, you know, <laughs> but um, I've done, I've done the, the Mount Tunnel path with, with Joe. So yes, I, I, I do know he's very, He's very good on the bike still. Yeah, he's good, you know, but they're, I mean, come on. I mean, today, these guys, these downhillers, oof, it's a whole nother world. They're mm. so good. It's amazing. I mean, I love to watch Danny Hart, you know, uh, he created this whole technique of, you know, when you have no traction, how to get traction. Oh, amazing. Mm. And there's a number of other kids that can do it now, like Danny. And, you know, you look at the different techniques are amazing, you know, and how, how they can go. And I mean, the French, I mean, Luke Bruni and, uh, you know, Lauren Volet and Aaron Gwynn and all this, you know, whew, I love watching um, the modern stuff, you know, but the bikes are on a completely different level. I mean, uh, the type of uh, suspensions that are out there now are incredible. I mean, I know this. I mean, I ride, I ride suspension A, I ride suspension B and like, wow, there's a huge difference, you know, between they look the same, but man, 
this thing like this is a miracle when I ride this bike, you know, and, and then, uh, the trail builders, you know, it's, it's amazing. You know, um, they're using algorithms now <laughs> to, you know, figure out, you know, how this thing launches, how I can go through the air, where I landed, everything. It's amazing. Um, and that's what I see is I, I want to bring that technology more to the urban landscape. And, um, for two reasons. For one, is that we'd have less uh, dangerous uh, bike routes, bike paths, because some of those the bike paths are just awful. I mean, they get designed in two dimensions, and the people designing them have very little idea of how a bicycle actually functions. You know, the the worst of bike path. Um, so to really bring up the quality of bike path, and then secondly, to be able to have fun. <laughs> which is something that needs to be imported into the cities. And, you know, uh, we can have a safe routes to school, commuter routes, but also, you know, features and go arounds, you know, because kids, uh, humans need to stress themselves in that. Um, you, you know, it's the old thing. You either use it or lose it. You know, if you don't use a, a bodily function, man, it'll deteriorate. So it's, it's, it's not chronological, but it's elsewhere in the book where you actually talk about uh, like the pump tracks yeah. uh, in Fruita, where they're, they're basically the, on the bike paths on the routes to school. Yeah. So the kids are on the pump tracks, but it's actually getting them to school yeah. at the same time. Yeah, and they're having That's fun. Really cool. They're having fun. They get to school. They're more focused. And we now have the studies to say, this is for real. You know, we used to be, you know, thinking, oh, have these gut feelings. I know this is right. I know this is right. And now we've got all these peer-reviewed medical papers that say, hey, guess what? You were right. <laughs> you know, so it's, I, I feel really good about being, you know, the, uh, just a huge campaigner. And what I really like is my boss says, go, you know, that's what I like you doing. You know, I like you campaigning about this. And um, that's, I see right now there's some really intense times you know we can especially in the states and in the uk it's like you know you can give it up to the car guys again or we can make some real change and it's i i watch the struggles you're going through and that's the the biggest is once you change the matter between the ears the gray matter everything else is easy and you are in that battle <laughs> and i i really admire what you're doing you know and and uh, all the others that we have that are fighting this intellectual battle to like um, tell the uh, emperor that he's wearing no clothes to say, you know, that the automobile does not work <laughs> for our cities. <laughs> well, you do have a, a, a transportation secretary now that that's it, talking that language anyway, like mayor Pete um, is talking about that kind of stuff. So we'll, we'll see where that goes, but I want to stick to history. Okay. Okay. So we're now we're back to 1976, and you've already mentioned that you were working for Bicycling Magazine, but this is when you start working for Bicycling Magazine. So that's absolutely a big deal. Yeah. As you said, you know, you were getting kit, you were getting recognition. So how do you get the deal with bicycling? Because that that's that's it is a big deal. Well, um Bill Fields walks into the shop I was working at and he says, Hey, I've, we've heard that you're a really good bike racer. We want you can you write an article for you know, bicycling magazine, do the road test. And I said, yes. And let me tell you, I was not a writer. <laughs> Boy, I agonized over the first few uh, <laughs> months and everything, but it worked out, you know, and I just really wanted to do it. I just really wanted to do it. 
you know, period. And at this point, you were, as you said, you are you're a racer. So you are you're a water, you're not a life, right? but you're, you're like a you're an up and coming um, road racer. There's a track had just been built, I believe you, you say in your book. Uh, so you're basically a roadie. Yeah. Well, I, I love bikes. I mean, I wanted to do nothing more than to uh, ride and race a bike. I mean, it, to me, I mean, it was like the greatest sport there ever was. And, and I still feel it. You know, I still like tell the guys, you know, racing. I say, look, you're doing the most fun thing in the world. You know, yeah, it's intense. Yeah, it's hard sometimes. But you know what? This is the most incredible thing in the world. And I, I still feel that way. You know, it's uh, it's it's a, a fantastic sport, you know. It involves a, a lot of science, um, a lot of um, strategy, and a lot of physicality. So 1972... Uh, that's actually when you met Charlie Kelly, mm-hmm. and you, it says here that you each had the same bike mm-hmm. and the same interests, and you became roommates. Right. So that was long before you you started a business together. Yeah. So where where was that? Where was doesn't actually say in here where that was? Oh, that was in uh, San Anselmo, and it was right above this recording studio they called the Church, and you know bands like Huey Lewis and the News they did all their stuff in there, and. The Sons of Champlin. That was a uh, the band Charlie worked for, and it was a Twenty One Humboldt, and there was this perfect little pad right up there. And Charlie was a roadie, and I've been hanging out. I've been living with musicians. You know, I was uh, living with a band called New Writers of the Purple Sage, and um, big old house in Kentfield. And what happens? The band becomes really popular, and then everybody goes out and buys their own house, gets their own place. <laughs> so I had to go find my own place and I was tired of living with rock and rollers in a way. And Charlie, well, Charlie's still a rock and roller, but then it was like, he was a uh, sort of an athlete. So that was a lot of fun. Oh, no, we're we're going to get onto your, your rock and roll background or your hippie background or whatever you want to de- de- describe it as. And we would absolutely want to talk about that. But I, I kind of, I've written some notes here because it says 1971 is when you start racing again. Right. Cause we're going to go into the, there was a hiatus. There was a gap mm-hmm. in which you, you were doing stuff to your body. That wasn't just um, a temple and uh, athletic stuff. But I, my notes here are just saying um, cycling in effect, became your new drug, your new high. Yeah. So you got back into it. You you you're coming from a scene that had soured, um, like a a, a drug, psychedelia, LSD well, scene. It was it was uh, you know parts of it were incredible. I mean, you know, I, I hung out with uh, Jack Leary. I mean, Timothy's son. You know, I used to work for the Bear. You know, the guy who made more LSD than anybody on the planet. You know, I worked, uh, Ken Kesey, I used to go hang out on his farm, you know, I used to hang out with so Ken Kesey. So these are the LSD guys of the time. Oh, yeah. Really? He, was a, he was a writer, you know, um, one flew over the cuckoo nest, you know, you know, that book. And now they're doing a, mo- a new mo- version of the movie. Well, a TV version, Jack Nicholson was in the original, but it was, you know, it was a lot about, uh, consciousness expansion. And it totally got out of hand and I watched it, you know, I saw the whole thing, you know, and it was stupid. <laughs> it went from, um, being something really incredible. I mean, yeah, the temple taking care of the temple, you know, uh, to 
abusing the temple. Uh, mm. It went, you know, off the hook. You know, I was at, uh, I watched the, the Altamont thing get organized, right? I knew all the organizers and then they would hang out in the meetings and stuff. So Altamont was like a... a- it was going to be another Woodstock, but it was originally like we were going to get the Beatles there. That didn't work out. We got the second shrift, the Rolling Stones. <laughs> and we were going to do it in Golden Gate Park. Well, the city of San Francisco wouldn't allow it. And then it got shifted over to this big motor speedway up um, Sears Point. But then the owner of Sears Point, um, one of the owners found out that uh, the Rolling Stones were going to film a, a movie there. you know, And he wanted a piece of the action and everything. And, and that went to south. And then... Within, you know, one day, they changed the venue to this other place in Altamont. And it was just a freaking like a disaster. And it could have been much worse. I mean, it could have been even worse, you know. I mean, there were, there were deaths there. Weren't four, there were stabbings four, and- four deaths, you know. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, Mick Jagger could have lost his life that day. I mean, seriously, you know, it was nuts, you know. And it was like, this is the stupidest ass dream, you know. I'm getting out of here. You know, this is a mess, you know, and it's funny. I mean, uh, cooler heads prevailed. I mean, Bill Graham took over the whole promotion thing. You know, I knew Bill Graham. I worked for him too. You know, it was a, he had his act together, tough old New Yorker, you know, and it needed to be worked out the way it, it did, but it was sort of like the dream was over. You know I mean? Literally after that, that was in December of 1969. Um, Thousands of people left San Francisco and went elsewhere because that that didn't work. You know, it wasn't working, you know. And I said to myself, I'm going back and doing the bike. The bike never lied to me. Bike was always good to me. I love the bike. So you go back and race race the bike again. And um, that's all I wanted to do at that moment. Roughly 1968 to 1970 were when you were part of this alternative oh, yeah. scene, roughly. Were you still riding a bike during those two years? Not for beans, you know. It was more than two. It was about a four-year period. We mm-hmm. a, um, did the light show thing, and that was pretty heavy duty. And the guy I did it with, you know, started it. He wound up uh, being the father of Visual Basic. He did a big company that he just – Alan Cooper. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and Alan, Alan Cooper's on Twitter. I, I follow Alan. So yeah, yes. yeah. And he's really, we used to make stuff. Oh man, we had a good time making stuff. <laughs> he's, you know, and I'll go do some more stuff with him again. I'm, I got some fantasies of doing some more stuff with Alan. So the, the, the photographs in the book are fabulous. And, and uh, the most evocative ones for me are of this period in that obviously they're very colorful uh, it's the oils and it's the, it's the light shows you were putting on. So basically you were doing light shows for Grateful Dead and bands like that. So, so tell me what a light show was, what, what exactly was it and how did you do it? Well, it's changed. The technology has changed completely, but back in those days, it used, um, we used slide projectors, which were two by two slide projectors. And, uh, so you'd have maybe, I had eight of those. Um, uh, overhead projectors, which is a 10 by 10 inch, um, uh, you know, you put liquids on those and those had to be like modified. Everything had to be modified. Oh my God. 16 millimeter film projectors. I had these 16 millimeter film projectors. I modified They're old keystone projectors and 
I put a separate, uh, uh, a different motor on uh, the drive. And then there was a motor um, for the film gate, uh, um, in the air over the film gate, a fan over the film gate, and then a fan over the bulb. These things, uh, there were 1,200, yeah, 1,200 watt bulbs. Oh, my God. And um, you could run up to 60 frames a second on these because they were, you know, 24 frames a second is, um, you know, standard and everything. But I could run them super fast or I could go, you know, one at a time down to zero, you know, DC motors. And um, you turn off the fan in the film gate and you go like uh, one frame at a time and you use black film and the film would burn, man. And we go on the screen and go poof, poof, poof. Another effect was using film loops and you could do one or two film loops in this one gate, you know. And it's like every projector was modified, you know. And these had, you know, mounts for color wheels on them, the whole ways of color wheels. I mean, color wheels would ever use those anymore you use electronica to do things liquids you know boy it was oils based on oil and alcohol based uh, colors and the oil colors especially we worked really hard on making them super transparent and you could take a, a drop of this oil and mix it with clear oil and it would colorize it but you could look through the whole bottle it was amazing and um you know the clock faces were from real clocks you know and You'd get glass clock faces that matched each other correctly. I'm telling you, there's so much detail in this. It's nuts. And there was about 50 different light shows in, um, well, in, in the Bay Area and in New York, where, where light shows were, and a few in LA. There were a few out down there. And we had a thing called a Light Artist Guild after a while, you know, because, uh, we weren't getting the kind of money we wanted, you know, the type of thing. And, and there were 50 members, 50 different member groups. And I was a big part of that thing in the end. And we struck uh, the family dog on the beach when the Grateful Dead were playing and the dead wouldn't cross the uh, picket line. We, I rented a generator and we projected on the outside of the building and no one would go in. And then so uh, this, this, you're, you're basically eight, 18 or 19 at this point, aren't you? Yeah. This is like, I'm like no, I started when I was like 16. You know, 16, 17, 18, 19, you know, I still have a lot of the equipment. It's <laughs> funny. And, um, it was a scene. I learned a lot through that, that business. Uh, you know, the- and you had, you had very long hair then. So there's some photographs in the book. You, you had long hair. Yeah, I did. <laughs> You're a freak. I mean, that's what a freak was. Yeah. Somebody who was buying into that scene, had the long hair, was doing the LSD. Well, n- yeah, but there got to be like people had all this stuff on the outside could take the drugs in the inside and still be idiots. (laughs) You know, it was like, um, it, it was the whole thing went off of the tracks. And I think I talk about it. They're like cocaine came into the whole scene and I'll never forget it. There I am, uh, you know, at the, at the dead house. And like this guy from New York comes with this huge tin of Coke and he says, it's organic and uh, it's not addictive and people believed him. I couldn't believe it. And it was, you know, people like Owsley and, and, and Leary and, and all these other guys are like, stay away from that stuff, man. That stuff messes up your head, you know? And it did. It, it messed people up. It's not a good drug. Amphetamines, uh, that drug is uh, not good for the brain at all. It takes a brain, you know, about a year to heal from that stuff. You know, and it's right. You know, psychedelics are a different animal, you know, and today they're doing psychedelics again, but they'll do 
10 micrograms of LSD, we're like, we were doing 50 to 100, you know, which is too much, you know, it's excess. Excess is stupid, you know, and that's a big lesson out of the whole consciousness expansion. You figure out, hey, excess on all levels is stupid, <laughs> you know, and that's, here we are today, excess. <laughs> so you had long hair. But then if we, we skip uh, back another couple of years, so 1966, yeah. that's when you became a, a Cat A junior racer, and it says he with regular top five finishes. Uh, but then you got banned for racing for having long hair. And I, I've looked at the photograph. That wasn't very long. Right. At that point, that was quite short. No, in fact, Joe Breeze showed me a photo of myself at the last race I rode, you know, uh, before I got kicked out. And it was like my hair barely went over my ears. <laughs> you know oh man so uh you, you're a cat a junior racer and this is on your first kind of custom built bike and that's a paragon oh yeah paragon that was lars zabrowski he built those bikes and was really cool guy you know and what kind of gears? Because you were, you were oh it was a that one's a weirdo setup it had uh, simplex uh the plastic derailleurs because yeah, that, that, as, as I was reading between the lines, that you're making trying to make it light. So other people yeah. were using campag, and you were trying to make a light bike. So that's why you're using the simplex. Well, you simplex uh, uh, derailleurs, and it used um, Mafec uh, cantilever brakes. Those were light. That was a, an NTA uh, uh, crank set, and it was the old ones that they had there. An alloy crank set that was cottered. Do you remember that mm -hmm. one? And it mm -hmm. had sort of a, a shaped um, uh, bottom bracket spindle. <laughs> yeah, it was different. Okay, we're skimming back uh, fast now. So, 1962, that's when you get your first serious racing bike, a Legano, but that does have Campagnolo yeah, gears. Yeah, and uh, oh, Magistroni uh, cottered crank set, you know, steel crank set. <laughs> and there was no such thing as Campagnolo uh, brakes at that time. <laughs> you know, it was just uh, the derailers. <laughs> Oh, and I found a I found a good set of wheels. That was something. There was a I was hanging out at the bike shop, and there's some kid there that says, "Hey, I got these wheels, and I want to trade for a pair of clinchers." And I'm like, "You do? Okay, boom, boom." You know, and it was a set of a uh, high flange camp bag hubs and <laughs> a set of Fiami red label rims. Let's go. So, just describe the racing scene at that point. So we are talking um, mid 1950. Getting towards no the end of the nineteen fifties. No, no, no. Like I got into it in like sixty-two. Sorry, sixty-three. So I'm going. I'm going. I'm flipping myself here because you got your first bike in fifty-four. Sorry. So sixty-three. I mean, and, and I mean, road racing must have been pretty small back then. There were a hundred and twenty registered riders in all of Northern California, and mm. in those days, if you rode a bike seriously at all, you would register with the ABLA, even if you didn't race. And that's how few riders were. There was like two women, you know, there were seven intermediates. That was my uh, category. You know, you'd see somebody on the road that wasn't a uh, obvious DUI victim or uh, some kid and you'd stop them and exchange phone numbers. And otherwise you knew who it was for sure. There were that few people, you know, it's, but it was very chummy, you know, so to speak. And how did you get into racing? So I, I, I've, in 1954, you got your first bike, a Schwinn Spitfire, but these aren't these aren't racing bikes. So how did you start actually racing a bike? Well, it was 
I was hanging out at the bike shop and it was a San Mateo bike shop. It was a swing shop. And there are these guys that show up and hey, we're going to go on a ride. And it was these guys that were like 15, 17, 18. And they're looking at me. You can't come. You can't come. Cause I was like, I was 12. I was like tiny. I was like five foot four and I was like 89 pounds skinny. And I said, yeah, I can come. And I just started riding with them and they didn't get rid of me. And at the end of the ride, they said, yeah, you can, you can be in a club. You can be a mascot. And I started crying. <laughs> I didn't want to be a mascot. I want to be a regular member. So, <laughs> okay, okay. We'll make you a regular member. And you know, that was, uh, the Belmont bike club. That was the first club I joined. Because there's some Brits there. Yeah. Who Larry Walpole, there's a few yes. few Brits back there were like basically organizing this club. Yeah. So you you were like brought into the scene by Brits. Well, yeah. I mean, Larry, especially. I mean, he was a, uh, he was from East London. He had the, you know, that accent and he was hilarious. And he was a mechanic for Pan Am. And um, he um, took care of me. He'd, you know, we do 80 mile rides and he'd make sure I made it, you know? The whole thing. And then Ray Andrews. Ray Andrews was a racer. He was a Brit uh, and living in the States. Um, but he was a our top category racer, you know, a good road racer. So, yeah, he taught me how to drink tea. <laughs> and Larry, the Larry, though, I mean, he'd get British uh, uh, cycling weekly. And then Miwa de Cyclis, you know, the, and that was the, mm-hmm. the window. You know, you got to consider, I mean, there was no such thing as video, you know, so you couldn't rent a video of some race or something. And, you know, I remember seeing a 16 millimeter film with some world championships, but that was all I ever saw of a European race until I was in my twenties and actually went to Europe. And you, you just wouldn't see how a rider rode or how a pack functioned or any of those physical things, you know, it was really different. And, you know, and riding races in those days was, far different and then you'd have there'd be 20 guys that could go fast and then it'd be 15 and then then it'd just be five you know it would just get whittled down so fast it would be ridiculous you know and and then later on when i was racing and especially you go to the national championships or something and there'd be a, a hundred really good riders that was different you know and um, the whole concept of uh, going to something like the tour de france where You've got 150 riders that are like so incredibly good, you know, that was something that was just like a dream, you know? So to to help me visualize this, I'm just mentioning here, breaking away. So breaking away is a different part of the U S it's not, it's not California, but is breaking away. Is, is that a good way of visualizing this scene? Is it how accurate is breaking away to that kind of uh, racing era? My mother used to say all the time, that was a movie about you, Gary. You know, <laughs> that, and I met, I met, the oh, who is the guy? Dennis Christopher. I met him. Yeah. Nice guy. But, um, I mean, in different scene in it, that was the Midwest. And in the Midwest, you know, it's, there's a portion of it that is highly organized, you know, and that was the actual event and everything, you know, that, uh, they did a good job on their event, uh, even though it was like absolutely bizarre, you know, the way that thing, the, uh, the little Indy 500, runs and everything whereas in california northern southern california was sort of the um where road racing came back it had almost died you know they hadn't had a national championships for a number of years and in 65 they did a 
they included it in the nationals in Southern California, a road race for the first time in a long time because there were enough people doing it and sort of came out of California and it was more, um, um, more independence and really different feeling, you know, the Midwest where things were families and well-organized and everything. And out here, it was some awesome races, but man, it wasn't organized like, uh, you know, like to do in the Midwest. I mean, the biggest race we had out here was, uh, back in those days was tour in Nevada city, you know, for Northern California and, uh, Southern Cal had a few big races and then there were a number of races that would happen, you know, I mean, like Mount Hamilton race. When I was 17, I organized the race. I was the promoter because, um, I was in this club, Pedale Alpini and you had, or no, how old was I? I don't know if I know I was 20 when I organized that race, but I was, it was my turn to organize a race, you know, <laughs> and that's how loose it was. You know, everybody had to take a turn in a club of organizing the race. Can you imagine? And it wasn't so bad when there's only 75 riders in all categories combined, <laughs> you know? So, uh, but no, it wasn't well organized. It wasn't something, it was tiny, you know, but I loved it. I completely loved it. And, um, ah, so nine, 1955, you're five years old. And that's when you moved to San Francisco in effect from, from, uh, well, from Oakland, California. Well, yes and no. I mean, I was, uh, no, when I was six months old, we, um, I was born in Oakland. My father was in the Navy. When I was six months old, we uh, took a ship to Guam. My mother said, yeah, you got seasick. <laughs> my mother was a uh, singer. My mother was an inter entertainer. My mother sang in the nightclubs. My mother got the attraction of like one of the, the island's uh, big guys, you know, like a native guy. And <laughs> my father got really jealous. Uh, my mother said, forget about it. And she moved back to Beverly Hills and took me with her when I was uh, three and a half. And we lived with my grandfather. And my grandfather worked for Warner Brothers. And he was a, scripter, a script supervisor. And he invented that job. And he was actually really well known in Hollywood. Uh, There's some great photographs in the book. I'm, I'm now skimming through it here. Uh, of him at his at his horse, the the like the script table, yeah, that he's got there with all these fantastic movie, you know, movie scenes that he's in. You know, obviously behind the scenes, uh, oh, but clearly big blockbuster movies going on with some big major stars. He was the guy that told the actors, "This is what you're going to say. This is how you say it, right?" So I got these photos of him, and he's right in the center of action. You know, he's you know he the director is there making sure everything's going right doing things, but my grandfather is the guy that's like, okay, next line, next line, next line, next line, next line. And he used to take me on the set. He'd bring Ronald Reagan, Joan Crawford, Errol Flynn to our house. <laughs> we'd, we'd go to this park where the Disneys were hanging out and they were, you know, it was a little rat hole park in Hollywood where all the actors would bring their kids and Walt Disney and his family would show up and he'd go on about, I'm going to build this park for the family and everything. And he did, you know, and we went to opening day and it was crazy and everything. And then later, my, my, uh, my best friend around the corner and I, we built a Disneyland in his backyard. My mother says, oh, hey, and my mother, you know, I'm 90 years old. Last year, she says to me, Gary, 
you know, this is about marketing and how you provide press releases, press for um, media. She says, Gary, you're doing their job for them. Okay, let's go back to L.A. You know, she's she calls up three different newspapers, including the L.A. Times, and says, hey, I got a story for you. And they come out and do us run a story on us. Here I am, uh, you know, five years old. I'm in the L.A. Times. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, I mean, this is in, in your book. You, that, you can actually see that's it. That's where the I learned, you know. That's where I so you learned learn from your mum, like good, good at, at, at PR and and good at presenting yourself. Right. So what I haven't been able to track down in the book, I mean, there's there's disparate uh, mentions of it everywhere in the book, but there's not like one section that I'd like to do. Your fashion sense, oh. because that's clearly uh, what an awful lot of people will will know about you, and and especially your well, your penchant for suits. Basically, you're famous for your suits, your Paul Smith suits, and there was a Paul Smith connection in cycling, of course, because he was, he was, is a, a, a big time uh, cycle fan. Um, and then you've had Tom Baker suits, you've had all sorts. So, where did that fashion sense come from? When did it generate? And 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 the thread seems to be very early, from like you know, like the the freak days where you were you were you were doing different stuff. Yeah. No, it's fashion wise. No. I mean, my mother always, you know, and our family always. It was always something, you know, to be appreciated. And myself, it's always of a, you know, it's like you can have a lot of fun dressing, you know, and it's uh, it's your way of uh, presenting yourself to the world too. Um, what's funny though is like it's it, I'll tell people it's my big vice, you know. So I don't spend money on cars. I spend money on on suits and things is not that much money when you buy quality. That's, that's the amazing thing. The quality stuff lasts a long time and the looks last a long time. The hardest thing is just staying fit enough to fit things. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, uh, I, I don't know. It's just, I appreciate it. You know, I think that's what it is, is if you don't care about it, it, it doesn't work. Right. So you do, you said you do have the physique, for these fancy suits that that certainly helps that helps. but it's also a look i mean you could be going in a, in a trade show anywhere in the world and and you could spot you from a long way off so it's trademark as well yeah, yeah? no it's it's just i like to do it you know and i know and i it's that thing too you go to where you need to go to find the very best in the world and then you get humbled <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I will go to London and hang out with my friends that they, they all know so much more than I do. And I learn from them um, all the time, you know, and, and we just have fun, you know, and that's the big thing. And it's all about uh, having fun and, and, uh, and, you know, and you're evoking these looks from different places, different ideas and things and having a good time with it. Um, that said, I mean, it's, I love it, but it's not like, um, I'm not making my living with it. I, you know, it's not a business I really want to be in to the fashion business and I enjoy it and everything, but, um, and I know it's become, I become well known for it. Um, but. Gary, you've been sat there, you've been sat there on zoom, you know, Skype style chats where, where your wife Alex is is, is in um, a dressing gown, and you're you're in a suit. So this is a this is not just a trademark, like you right. know when you come out of the house. You, you, 
you've you've really bought into this, haven't you? You've like well, it was a long time ago. I said I'm not going to wear a t-shirt anymore. Who old to do that? It doesn't. I can't pull it off. You know, it doesn't look right. You know, and I I can dress this way, and it's easy. You know, it's a lot easier than than you'd think. You know, it's it's not that difficult. You know, when you find things that work a few and everything. It's, I, you know, and, and it's really interesting because I, I, man, I haven't bought anything in the last year. I mean, nothing. It, I've slowed down in the last uh, five years or more, you know. Of, uh, but so do you have a snazzy dressing down then? So when you take your suit off and you're getting into something more comfortable and you're going to bed, are you like, do you also have a snazzy dressing gown? So I'm expecting like a, you know, an English smoking jacket or something. What do you, what do you, uh, how do you? Actually, it's more cartoonish, you know, it's like more like is <laughs> is pretty funny because right now my daughter is dressing me more than anybody. She's the big cop. She says, daddy, no, no, you can't wear that. You got to wear this. It's hilarious. Mm-hmm. She's, She's something else. And the kids, they just encourage that, you know, we're, we're just having fun out here with this. It's, it's, uh, no, I don't think about it too hard. I'm, I'm trying to, I mean, right now I will, I mean, I, I'll tell you though, before I do normally when I go and I travel and I do things, I think about what am I, what am I trying to present here? Who is my audience? Uh, you know, and, and I'll outdress them, but, but by not by too much. It's not cool hmm. to go too far out there. So okay. I'm definitely calculating for that. So the front cover of the book, is it, it draws in a lot of, of your history. So it's got the, the you in the suit. It's got you in a handlebar mustache and a hat and the shades. And then it's got the Gary Fisher is picked out in like freak style, you know, nineteen late 1960s um, typography, which is absolutely fantastic. And then you, on your suit, there's a, there's a little bear. Yeah, on a right. bicycle. What's the bear and the bicycle? Oh, that's Grateful Dead. Grateful Dead always loved bicycles. Wow. That's something, you know. They bought a lot of bikes from me over the years. <laughs> you know, but they, they, and they always believed in the, the whole idea, you know, the whole thing. I, I love my friend Howard. Uh, he's a sound guy and for the dead, has been forever. And he started a club called the Tamsters. And it used to be, and I love this example of all inclusivity um he'd say they'd say well look once you've ridden to the top of mount tam you could become a member and then they soften the rules they said well uh if you say you're going to ride to the top of mount tam you could become a member and then they went the ultimate they said if you think that riding to the top of mount tam is a good idea you can become a member and that's the way i want bikes to be you know you can be you don't even have to do it. You just got to think it's a good idea. Then you're my friend. <laughs> right. And that's the sort of inclusivity that I like to see and everything at the same. So um, Gary. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. sorry, sorry. No, uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to wrap up here. Gary, and sorry. it's going to be very difficult with, with you, of course. Um, so being Gary Fisher is the name of the book. Uh, the, the subtitle is called and the bicycling or the, and the bicycle revolution. Sorry. Uh, where can people get this from? I mean, it's Blue Train is the publisher. I mean, this is this is everywhere. This is it's thirty nine dollars ninety nine, uh, money well spent. Uh, but where can people get it? Well, that's a story unto itself too. Ha ha ha! We decided we aren't going with um, the good old Amazon. No, no, no. And what's funny is like um, Trek is you know uh, a very good distributor of bicycles. I mean, we we sell in a hundred countries, and so this is a challenge. 
Can we become a book distributor? Oh my goodness. And I'll tell you, um, the boss, John Burke, he loves the idea of being able to distribute books. I mean, look, he's done a few books himself. He had political books, his, his philosophy yeah. in, in, in democratic politics. You would like to be a good book distributor, <laughs> you know, and this is something in our common interest. And like I pointed out before, I mean, it is all about the gray matter between the ears and, you know, that's part of the job. And that is part of what I brought to track is this whole idea that it's not just the physical object. It is also, you know, the, all the ideas behind that physical object. So this physical object, which I've got on my hands now, uh, <laughs> which doesn't need to be seen in print. It's not a Kindle. It's not a Kindle book. It's, it's, you've got to be able to see it. It's like it's dripping with wonderful photographs, great typography, great uh, design. The whole thing is a great package. So basically people have got to buy it from bike shops. Yeah, that's right. You know, online bike shops are our distribution at the moment is, to be honest, horrid. And uh, will we improve it? Absolutely. And it's a whole process. And I'm not worried. Um, uh, I know the book's going to do really well. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> it, is, it is, Gary. It is fun. It's, uh, I read it. Um, it filled in a lot of background for me because I've, I've got an awful lot of mountain bike history books um, and bicycle history books in general. And, and just the photographs are just brilliant. And including you know your backstory so we haven't really got into your ancestors here at all but you've got a fantastic yeah. uh, bunch of ancestors there that 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 <laughs> built some amazing stuff um so gary thank you ever so much for for taking the time out today to to talk to me absolutely i can recommend being gary fisher and uh, even better that uh, you've got to go to a bike shop to to go and get it so thank you very much gary thank you that was the one and only Gary Fisher. And this has been episode 268 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. Show notes and a full transcript can be found, as always, at the-spokesmen.com. Now, that's it for this month. There will be another couple of episodes in March. Meanwhile, get out there and ride.